Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Nihongo Master Podcast. I'm your host Azra and today we're taking a walk down memory lane, or should I say the memory catwalk, because this week we're looking at Japanese fashion through the ages. We all know that Japan is full of traditional culture, something which you'll see reflected on the streets, where salarymen in business suits rub shoulders with a group of young women wearing gorgeous floral robes and trendy hipsters who combine their modern tees and trousers with stilted sandals from centuries past. But as you can imagine, Japanese fashion didn't always look quite like this. As in all cultures, today's traditional threads are the risque avant-garde garments of days gone by. And in a sense, the story of how these outfits morphed and developed over the years is the story of Japanese history itself. I mean, you won't see your average Tokyoite going around in full samurai armor these days because the risk of ninja assassination is comparatively low. Though never zero, watch your backs out there folks. Instead, you'll see the majority of them in western business attire. But you'd have looked like an alien in a spacesuit if you rocked up in a shirt and tie before Japan opened to the west in the 19th century. What I'm saying is, fashion reflects the times. So grab your best kimono and let's take a stroll through Japanese fashion through the ages. First off, we're going way back to the pre-1600s. Japan was heavily influenced by the Chinese in these early days in everything from food to language, so it's only natural that the clothing was as well. During the Asuka era, 538-710, and Nara era, 710-794, Chinese fashion was the primary style of clothing in Japan. Women wore tarikubi, robes with crossed collars, while men wore round-necked robes called Agyakubi. These collars have to be worn left over right, following the Chinese tradition. The long hakama skirt and a split trouser style called umabori were also borrowed from the Tang Dynasty, and you can still see them worn over kimonos by both men and women today. It was only in the Heian era, 794 to 1185, that there was a shift in not only the fashion, but the overall culture of Nippon as a whole, when the identity of Japan became more distinct from China. When China's Tang Dynasty declined in dramatic and bloody fashion, Japan turned its eye inwards. The result was the burst of homegrown arts, architecture, poetry, and of course, clothing. We all know what the most famous Japanese traditional clothing piece is. It's definitely the kimono, a long robe with short, white sleeves. It made its grand debut in the Heian era. Kimono literally translates to thing to wear, which doesn't win any prizes for imagination because it was considered an everyday essential rather than a decorative piece. The short-sleeved style of kimono-leg robe popular in those days were known as kosude. This served as the base layer upon which the fancier garments would be layered on. Layer in Japanese is reya. Commoners were also wearing kosude-style clothing, just without the fancy layers on top. They weren't allowed to wear the dress of the aristocrats, so their solution was to make a similar kind that suited the manual labour lifestyle. Meanwhile, the Chinese agyakubi and tarikubi went out of fashion and only the members of the imperial family wore them for extremely special occasions. Usually, the kimonos were made from plain material, but high-ranking people of the imperial court had theirs made in brocades and top-quality silk. Sometimes, upper-class women donned the Juni Hitoe, a 12-layered ensemble that could weigh up to 20 kilograms. It's hard enough to trudge through a humid Japanese summer in a t-shirt and shorts, so that basically sounds less fashion statement and more death sentence. Even on casual occasions, women would wear at least two or three layers, 
with each layer's hem and sleeves peeking out from underneath the others. Never mind catcalling, in those days, even looking at a woman's face directly was a big no-no. With eye contact out of the window, women had to find a way to low-key flirt with the boys. They would subtly swish their kimono-clad arms past bamboo screens. Plenty of novels and poems from the Heian period took that as a romantic gesture, although it's unlikely to get you anything but confused looks if you try that at a bar nowadays. Colour played quite a big role too, as it was an indicator of rank. Brighter colours meant you were someone important, as the rarer dyes were obviously quite expensive. Purple, Murasaki, was the highest and grey the lowest, with 12 main divisions overall. Even within each rank, there were subdivisions. The darker the shade, the higher the rank. So if you plan on time travelling, ditch the whites and the yellows from your suitcase unless you want to be looked down on like a newbie intern. And don't even think about rocking yellowish-brown or orange. Those were reserved for the emperor and crown prince respectively. If you showed up in those, you'd probably be arrested for a literal fashion crime. Whatever your opinions on modern fashion, nobody ever got locked in a castle dungeon over acid-washed jeans or socks and sandals, unfortunately. So the traditional Japanese clothing we know now has a long and rich history, borrowed from China, adapted to the times and layered to comical levels. Here's a quick vocab recap from the pre-1600s. Kimono, traditional Japanese clothing. Layer, reya. Hakama, a skirt-like garment worn over kimono ropes. Umabori, a type of hakama with split legs. Now we move on to the Edo era, when the Tokugawa shogunate came into power and brought peace and stability to Japan for about 250 years. Everything seemed pretty chill at the start of the era of peace, until the shogun passed some pretty restrictive clothing laws. Only the nobles and military class were allowed to wear the most luxurious fabrics. Anything silk and satin, pattern and brocade, was limited to the high ranks. This law allowed people to strut their social status and power because it would be several centuries yet until Louis Vuitton shoes and Gucci handbags allowed people to do that without the need for legal backing. And just like these modern fashion houses, the kimono makers of the Edo era realised they could make a killing by helping the wealthy elite show off their wealthiness and eliteness as ostentatiously as possible. The traditional garment became an art form, and that called for greater manufacturing capabilities and developments of embroidery skills for new patterns. The wealth from the higher-ups trickled down to the merchant class, and with it a nice helping of the arts, culture, and fashion. Back in the Heian era, the yukata was worn by the nobles after a bath. It's kind of similar to kimono, only it's usually made from cotton or linen, extremely lightweight, and worn loosely. The word yukata actually comes from yu to mean bath, and katabira to mean underclothing. During the Edo period, when public baths became more common, even the commoners were using yukata, and you'll still see them worn as the lightest summer kimono today. Initially, Japanese ropes were tied off with cords, but during the Edo era, these were switched out for obi, thick sashes that wrap around the waist. On formal occasions, women would wear a 30cm wide ornate obi known as the maru obi, which holds all the layers of the kimono together neatly. This ultra-formal version is still worn during traditional weddings. As the commoner class became more fashionable, the noble class, aside from picking up extremely luxurious kimono, also took to wearing the haori, 
an outerwear piece worn over the kimono. This thigh-length flowing jacket was pioneered by the geisha, but both genders could be seen wearing it after the craze caught on. Most of the time, it was worn to protect the kimono from getting wet or dirty when they were out and about. Similarly, a pair of geta sandals protected the hem of the ropes from dragging through the dirt because these wooden shoes are raised up a couple of inches off the ground by two wooden blocks on each sole. During festivals and other special events, you'd also have seen plenty of people fitting about wearing a similar but shorter style of outerwear, the hapi. This thin and colourful garment would be embroidered with the family crest, or mon in Japanese, of an important lord in brown or blue, and worn by his lackeys so he could easily identify them. The Japanese love a good uniform, so the trend quickly caught on among all sorts of groups from firefighters to fishermen. Head to any summer festival parade in Japan and you'll see all sorts of bright and beautiful happy, which usually single out individuals from specific areas of the city or individual dance troops. One quirk of upper-class Edo-era fashion was a hangover from Japan's bloody past. The samurai class would also often wear a lightweight chainmail vest underneath all of the fancy clothes. Like I said, ninja, you can never be too careful. So in short, the Edo era marked an important time in the history of Japanese fashion, as things got a bit more comfortable for everyday people. They could start to enjoy some of the finer things in life. And sure, they were banned from wearing silk, but big whoop. If I'm a 17th century farmer, do you really think I could afford silk anyway? I'm just happy my village isn't being burned to the ground. So here's a recap of the vocab from the Edo era. These clothes are still in use today, so they're worth remembering. Yukata, a loose kimono worn after a bath or in summer. Haori, a loose jacket usually worn over a kimono. Geta, traditional wooden raised sandals. Obi, a thick sash which ties around the waist of a kimono. Happy, an overcoat with a family crest emblazoned on it, originally for men, but now worn by both genders. And we move on to the Meiji era, arguably the most significant time in Japanese fashion's evolution. Before this time, Japan was sealed off from the Western world, but thanks to the Meiji Restoration, this all changed. Suddenly, everyone from the street vendors to the emperor himself was obsessed with all things Western. That included everything from education and business practices to military tech and political theory. What's more, all these activities in the country put more and more citizens at work. After World War I, there was a huge rise in the middle class, with more people working, more businesses raking in profits, and more taxes to be collected. There was a whole lot of money going around, some into the pockets of these middle class people who, in turn, looked to ride the wave of Western fashion. I mean, their old wardrobes were hardly going to cut it when the emperor had issued a mandate in 1971 for all officials to wear Western clothes during work and official events. Boy, did that mandate really affect the streets. Men were quick to switch to suits, which they wore instead of their traditional garbs when rising at dawn to head off to work. And after the empress herself started dressing the latest Parisian trends, any woman with an ounce of fashion consciousness followed suit, wearing yofuku, western-style clothing, when out in public. Not only did the clothes change, but also the hair trends. The emperor himself cut off his topknot, chonmage in Japanese, in 1872. What a way to make a statement! It certainly worked for Britney, and naturally, his loyal followers couldn't resist but to do the same. 
Western haircuts and facial grooming became a big thing. Mustaches and beards were a big hit in Japan. And rather than beards and whiskers, the women of Japan took to Victorian updo hairstyles, like a neat middle parting tied at the back in a bun. Even the schools took the emperor's mandate seriously. The Meiji era saw the birth of Gakugan, a male school uniform that's basically translated to Western-style clothes for uniform. You can't miss it. The standing collar known as Tsumeeri was based on the Prussian Waffenrock, a kind of outerwear worn by German military. What about the female uniform, you ask? Well, it wasn't until later that the Seira Fuku, sailor-style school uniform, came into the picture, inspired by the British Royal Navy uniform. If you've watched any Japanese TV shows or movies, you've almost definitely seen this iconic outfit. While the streets were taken over by the Western influences, the same wasn't true of Japanese homes. After clocking out of work, boarding draggy train rides home, then finally making it through the front door, the first thing people did was throw off their suit and tie and step into comfy traditional clothing. Fair enough, 19th century yofuku weren't the best for tatami mats, and you're hardly going to track dirt all over the floor just to keep showing off your fancy English high-button boots. Meiji-era fashion was pretty much a show of uniformity amongst the people of Japan. As the emperor gained more and more power, and eventually started demanding the literal worship of his people, anyone who wanted to be someone in the big city had to make a real show of supporting the implementation of Western ways. Okay, a quick recap of the vocab of this revolutionary era. Yofuku, Western-style clothing. Kakuran, Western-style male school uniform. Seira Fuku, sailor-style female school uniform. Chonmage, top-knot hairstyle popularly worn by men. As we move into the Taisho era, 1912-1926, after the death of the Meiji Emperor, there wasn't that much of a change on the political scene. Yofuku, western clothing, remember, was still a symbol of novelty and refinement. While the Meiji era bombarded the Japanese with momentous modernizations day after day, and the Edo era represented the old traditions, the Taisho era struck a nice balance between the two. You see, even though this era was short-lived, it made quite an impact. Remember when the emperor basically made everyone give up their comfy robes for woolen trousers? You can think of this style change as an analogy for some bigger societal changes which were happening at the time. The old ideological garb of medieval feudalism was being switched out for a shiny new westernized liberalism. Freedom of expression, anyone? Some of the Japanese people took that as a way out of wearing yofuku and sticking to their traditional garb of robes. The liberalization of fashion to them meant the freedom to go retro-traditional. Others took it to mean the complete opposite. Now even the lower middle class and working class were getting in on the westernization trend. During the Taisho era, the idea of modernity was closely linked to social liberation. Western threads and showy dresses screamed freedom in choice. Choice in clothes, choice in attitudes, and even the choice of who they wanted to spend the night with. However, not everyone could afford it. For them, it could be merely adding a new piece of accessory in their outfit, like a short-brimmed hat for the men, and a shawl wrapped around the neck for the women. In fact, accessory... If you can't already tell, it means accessory in Japanese, were pretty much booming. Watches, toki, jewelry, hōshoku, hats and others came into fashion with a bang. 
chronologically trapped between Japan's first major wave of modernization and the more restrictive and totalitarian pre-war days, the Taisho era dipped Japan's toes into tolerance and experimentation for the first time. The Japanese people took what they wanted from Western ideas and fused it with their own culture. So, I guess we could say that the Taisho era was like puberty for contemporary Japanese fashion, when it really started to figure out what it was going to be when it was all grown up. Now, for a quick vocab recap of the Taisho era. Accessory Accessory Toke Watch Although, it can also mean clock. So if you want to be more specific, say Udedoke Wristwatch Hoshoku Jewelry Or nowadays, people commonly use the katakana version Jewelry On to the next and final phase, the Showa era 1926 to 1989, which pretty much set the fashion scene up as we know it today. The Showa era covered over six decades across the pre- and post-war periods. So while there was a brief interim during which infantry uniforms were all the rage, there's so much more to this age than just that. With the American occupation came a wave of Americanization. Suddenly, the Japanese were playing baseball, eating hot dogs, and riding around listening to Swiss and jazz. Let's not forget that this was also the iconic period of the time that various Japanese subcultures were formed. If you had listened to one of our previous episodes, you'd know the teenage terrorways known as the Yankee started stomping around the streets of Japan during the Showa era. You could even argue that the very idea of the teenager was a US import. Moving through the 70s and 80s, things started to get pretty weird with the arrival of more subcultures like Lolita and Visual K. Things were all about expressing yourself in the most visually ostentatious way possible. Head on down to Harajuku in Tokyo or its swankier, more grown-up neighbour, Omotesando, to see this vibrant modern fashion scene for yourself. Alongside big luxury brands from around the globe, you'll find no end of small, indie hipster designers peddling their wares. But don't let the internet fool you. The Japanese aren't all running around in made outfits and neon leather jackets. Everyday fashion here remains quite sedate and modest. I go out every day and almost every man is in a sebiro, business suit. Or simply a sutsu, if you'd rather use the katakana. In summer, they tend to ditch their ties and jackets and switch to the short-sleeved shirts to beat the horrific Japanese summer humidity. This started in 2005 as part of the kurubizu campaign by the Japanese government aimed at cutting down AC costs in offices. Students, mothers and school kids on their day off tend to wear simple, loose-fitting pants and t-shirts, the kind that Japan's main fast fashion brand Uniqlo produces en masse. If you've spent any time in the hipster neighbourhood of Shimokitazawa, you also know that nowadays, the Japanese love a good vintage shop, which you'll find packed with all the weird and wonderful scraps imaginable. The rise in unique fashion movements and clean-cut contemporary styles weren't the only things the Showa era had to offer. Sure, the Victorian-inspired feminine style of Lolita and the scruffy, perfectly permed Yankee were iconic, but the good old tradition stayed alive and can still be seen today. Kimonos had traditionally always been handmade, hand-stitched and hand-dyed from scratch. It was what gave the kimono such a luxurious reputation because of the blood, sweat and tears that went into making one. But after World War II, the commercialization and industrialization of the Japanese clothing industry meant that affordable, mass-produced kimono were abundant. 
Traditional handmade varieties, made with historic techniques like shibori print dyeing, became a symbol of wealth for those who turned their noses up at the idea of machines taking over the traditional crafts. Speaking of prints, they don't just have it on kimonos. Japanese patterns that were traditionally only on the kimono were also being printed on western-style clothing like dresses. I bet you've seen tons of hana, flowers, printed on fabrics in clothing shops all over the world nowadays, and maybe a fair few Japanese bird prints too. These patterned flowers usually draw upon ikebana for inspiration as well, the traditional Japanese art of flower arrangement. But wardrobe modernization wasn't all good, especially for Japanese women. In the workplace, it has long been mandatory for Japanese women to wear high heels, which sounds like hell to me. In fact, this issue is a pretty big cultural battleground nowadays, with modern Japanese women demanding such uniform rules be made illegal, while conservatives in the world of business and the government argue in favour of the restrictions. So the guys got to ditch their blazers because of the summer heat, but the girls still have to suffer the pain of high heels day after day? Although clothes come and go, some things never change. Okay, a quick recap of the vocab of this era. Sebiro, business suit, also known casually as a suitsu. Kurubizu, the summer business style, which you'll definitely hear mentioned if you plan on working in a Japanese office. Hana. Flower. Ikebana. Traditional Japanese flower arrangement. And now we come to the end of our breakneck tour through the past 500 years or so. We've seen how the Japanese fashion scene came to be the unique blend of tradition, westernization, and crazy experimentation which we know today. If you could only take one thing away from this, then surely it's how cool it is that much of the fashion which were popular in the old days are still prominent now. We've touched on more than a few pieces of Japanese clothing that topped up the pages of your vocab books. Head over to the Nihongo Master blog if you're interested in reading up on them some more. And if you're keen on picking up some more Japanese for yourself, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and the official website to learn more. Thank you so much for listening in. Join me in the next one where I'll be walking you down another avenue of Japan's rich culture. Mata ne!